Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm going to start with some pickup lines. If you're single in here, you need a pickup line, I'm about to give you solid gold. Are you ready? First, preferably men use these on women. You should take the initiative. You know, grow up, get a job. Be ready to marry a woman, then ask her out. Oh, I got it. That's right. And amen. Here we go. First pickup line. Are you a magician? Because whenever I look at you, everyone else disappears. <laughs> Number two. Do you have a map? I keep getting lost in your eyes. All right, men, don't use that one. This one is cheesy. Are you Australian? Because you meet all of my koalifications. Okay, guys. Number four. I was blinded by your beauty. I'm going to need your name and number for insurance purposes. Come on. Next. Is your dad a terrorist? Because you're the bomb. And finally, is your dad a drug dealer? Because you're dope. Possibly the worst sermon beginning I've ever had. We poor, powerless men rely upon cheesy lines to get the girl. Jesus relies on his own sovereign power and beauty in seeking out and calling his followers. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks now, and we're finally getting to the place where Jesus speaks for the first time. And he's going to call people to repent, and he's going to call them to follow him and to believe in the Gospel. And Jesus doesn't have to use cheesy pickup lines. As a matter of fact, he just has to speak the word and his followers come. And so as Jesus speaks for the first time in the gospel, he's saying the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he also says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. In these two statements, we really see the heart 
of what Jesus is doing. And I just want to point out, taking a time out as a quick aside, that when Mark really begins to summarize the ministry of Jesus, notice that he summarizes the ministry of Jesus through preaching. And that I'm not here politicking for my job. What I'm politicking for is what we all should be doing in spreading the gospel. Jesus came doing many things, uh, but Mark introduces him here as speaking words. And so Jesus is calling us to hear his words, and he's also calling us to follow him and to speak his words after him uh, to our world. Now, as we look at today's text and we look at these two things that Jesus is saying as he sovereignly calls uh, these people to follow him, I want us to look at it under two headings. First, Jesus opens up, which is what he's doing. He's opening up. He's opening up with the call to change allegiance in light of the kingdom of God. Jesus is opening up with the call to change allegiance in light of the kingdom of God. And then secondly, the call to allegiance results in following Jesus and fishing for men. The call to allegiance results in following Jesus and fishing for men. Let's look at this first one. Jesus opens up with the call to change allegiance in light of the kingdom of God. He starts by saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now what's interesting about the Bible, and it's something that we have to work through and define, is that Jesus uses the word kingdom a whole lot more than his followers do. Kingdom in the ESV is mentioned 126 times in the Gospels, but then kingdom is only mentioned 34 times in the rest of the New Testament. And so I don't think a shift in thinking happened, but I think what that points out to us is that we've got to be careful in how we define the kingdom. As a matter of fact, I think most of the arguments for theologians in many ways have to do with defining the kingdom and what it is in history and what we should expect of it. And there's a reason that it's difficult. And the reason that it's difficult is because it seems that the Jewish expectation was wrong in some ways. And it seems that Jesus talks about it in two different ways. And so Jesus is called to the kingdom. The first thing I want to do this morning is uh, really help to define what is meant by the kingdom of God in the Bible. And this is something that many people have written in a lot of books, so I'm not going to do it in five minutes, but I just want to kind of point us in a direction. Because while this may not be something that really blows you away in terms of your quiet time tomorrow, it is a major category in the Bible of God. It is the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is to have the people of God in the place that God has for them, worshiping him. And the kingdom has a lot to do with that. So the Jewish expectation, which Jesus has to spend a lot of time really countering, uh, was that the kingdom of God would arrive at the end of history. And they tended to understand God's kingdom almost entirely in geopolitical terms as the vindication and triumph of Israel over all our enemies, especially Rome. So when you were to say kingdom to the people of Israel, they would have thought, well, that's what God's going to bring in at the end. And when he does it, he's going to lift up the, the lowly, righteous, poor, his people, Israel, and he's going to set them above uh, all other nations. And he's going to do it through the Messiah. And Israel tended to think that the kingdom was going to come at the last day when there was the resurrection of the, the righteous and the unrighteous. 
The only problem is resurrection didn't wait until the end of history to start. Resurrection started in the middle of history with Jesus. And so the, the categories get confused. Uh, so there's a way in which the Jewish people are right because that's a good hope about what's going to happen at the end. But strangely in Jesus, the last days are reaching back into history in him and having an impact now. Now, if you were a theology class and I was teaching you, I would call this inaugurated eschatology. And so much of the Christian life is lived in light of this. So you know how the moment that you believe you're justified before God's throne and declared not guilty? This is a yes. And amen and praise the Lord. But what that is, is that's actually the, 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 the judgment that is going to be made on the final day about you reaching back into time. Which is why the Bible talks about us being justified in the moment and also standing before his throne and being declared righteous. It's a weird thing, and I don't expect to fully explain it today, but the kingdom falls into this. Yes, there is a kingdom at the end, the new heavens and the new earth. But in a sense, that new creation, that kingdom is reaching back into history in Jesus. And that new creation has already begun in him. And so Jesus will talk about kingdom in a couple of different ways. And one thing you need to know is even in the Old Testament, when God talks about the idea of a kingdom, it has to do more with his reign and not with his realm. In other words, even in the Old Testament, it has to do not with a geopolitical line, but it has to do with his sovereign working and being in control of all things. Psalm 103:19 says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And you can hear the basic meaning of the word kingdom is rule. And that's what Jesus is speaking about, because he'll say things like, uh, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or in Luke 17, 21, he says this, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But then in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about it as a future reality that we need to pray for. Uh, so he'll say that our prayer needs to be, Lord, may your kingdom come. So Jesus will say, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he'll say, may your kingdom come. And this is where we need to understand that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. And in a new way, God's rule and reign is being demonstrated in this earth. So that when we think about the kingdom of God, we don't need to think yet about some geopolitical thing over which he sits in a throne. We need to realize that God and Jesus is working in a new way in history so that resurrection has already come in. So that the kingdom has already come in and the sovereign power of God is already at work in the lives of people. Which is why uh, Paul will say something like, if any man is in Christ, he is what? He's new creation. New creation, kingdom, resurrection, um, the, the full outpouring of the spirit so that we be believe and follow and walk according to God's rules 24-7 uh, on an earth that he will remake for us. All of that has been given to us in kind of a down payment in justification and in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says the kingdom has come and you need to pray that the kingdom will come. And this will help us as we think about history. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he talks about it like this. 
the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And although it's the smallest of all of the seeds, when it grows up, it becomes what? The biggest tree and all the birds of the air come and nest in it. And here's what I think, here's how I think we need to interpret history. And we talked about this a lot when we finished Revelation. That the, the mustard seed of the gospel, the mustard seed of the kingdom has been planted in the hearts of men and women by the Holy Spirit. And as we come under the rule of God, the kingdom of God expands into the hearts of men and women. And I think like that mustard seed or like leaven, it's going to continue to spread until it overtakes the earth. And then Jesus will come back and in the blink of an eye will raise the dead and remake everything. The Holy Spirit will be poured out in power. And then the kingdom that is within us will become the geopolitical kingdom over which he rules. Which is why, of course, although we don't have the eyes to see it, because we think Christianity is all about the personal relationship of father and child that we have with God ourselves, but we're not thinking in terms that the Bible uses. As I've said before, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, where it says, the Lord God, the Father, says to my Lord the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. That's quoted every time it means Jesus is seated in the heavens. It's hearkening back to Psalm 110, which means God is through regeneration, through restoration, through the work of the church, through everything that's going on. God is spreading the kingdom and he's bringing that day where it all wraps up. So when Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, it's both a comfort and a threat. It's a comfort because we poor, wicked, wayward sinners can enter into it. But it's also a threat because if you don't get on board with the kingdom of God, the proof that it's coming has already happened and you're going to be left out in the cold. God's rule over all things is first manifested in the hearts and lives of men and women. It's manifested in the church as his gathered people. And it spreads until it overtakes all things. The arrival of the kingdom and individual folks and the church is a guarantee that it will come to pass. Which is why, and you're not going to believe this until I point it out, a lot of what Jesus is saying here is a threat. It's a threat. The, the first gospel presentation was a threat. Did you know that? In the Bible, this is a trick question, so you may not want to answer out loud. Who was the gospel first, first preached to? The devil. And it wasn't a comforting word. It was a threat. What did God say to the devil? The seed of the woman is coming, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So the gospel is both a comfort and the gospel is a threat. It's a comfort if we repent and are humble and come under the, the leadership and the rulership and the shepherdship and the protection of Jesus. And it is a threat if we want to remain hard-hearted. We'll see it's a threat even more when we talk about fishers of men. Because until a couple of months ago, I didn't know there was an Old Testament background to that. Did you? There is. And it's harsh. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here in principle which guarantees it's going to be here in fullness. And so you need to come into the kingdom of God now. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you need to know something. That God has established Jesus as the king of the world. 
And the most pressing matter upon your heart and life right now is that you say about Jesus what God says about Jesus. What God says about Jesus is he is the virtuous son who survived sinlessly and therefore I raised him from the dead and I have seated him above all things. And becoming a Christian in so many ways is in your heart saying Jesus is the Lord. And so Jesus comes saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. If it's coming in principle, then you know that it's going to come in power one day. And every person in here probably knows someone whose life has been thoroughly changed by Jesus. You know they've been made new, and that is a sign to you that God is coming. And so submit and believe and rejoice in the Son. What did Psalm 2 say? Kiss the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So Jesus says the kingdom of com is coming. And then he talks about how we enter into that kingdom. How does one enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus tells us here. And it's two sides of one coin. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we are mostly Baptists who've grown up in Baptist churches. And I really do think. And this is where I, I'm not hating my history. I'm just pointing out one of its problems, and you feel free to point out one of mine, is that the revivalist culture of the SBC has made so many of us OCD. Why do I say that? Because you have a revivalist who's looking to get people down the aisle, and it seems, no matter the, how good the intentions are, he's got to make a few people at least believe they're lost. And so they use repentance in a very caustic way, and they just try and bore down until even the most saved person in the room is saying what? Am I saved? And we go down the aisle again. That's one of the reasons we don't really do an altar call here. If you want to speak to me about the Lord after church, you do it. But I'm not going to set up the, the room to, to dig at you emotionally. Jesus is calling you or he's not. Talk to me about it or don't. Right? But Jesus calling these people to repent... Don't hear here what you've heard if you've grown up in Baptist churches, some caustic, harsh reprimand. Instead, what repentance is, is it's an invitation to switch allegiances. It's Jesus saying, you no longer be Lord, you let me be Lord, and guess what? It, it'll go better. It'll go better. Repentance is the gateway to joy. A pastor mentioned this this week, and I think it's a beautiful picture. When he was talking about repentance, he went to Iraq uh, back when we were at war with him. We're not still at war with him, are we? I, I can't keep up anymore. Um, but you remember that scene where Saddam Hussein had fled and the people took ropes and they tied it around this statue and they pulled that statue of Saddam Hussein down? That's repentance. It's just the statue is you. You've been a bad leader of your own life. Your lordship has not served you well. And what repentance is, is it's tying the rope around this, the statue of your own neck and yanking it down and instead saying, Jesus is now Lord of my life. That's repentance. It's a switch of allegiances. Have you done that? Have you switched allegiance? And then faith, belief, is the other thing. Belief means now I'm going to trust in Jesus as my Lord and I'm just going to pull in behind him and walk as he walked and walk in his way 
and walk in his people. Jesus, in his first call, says, hey, the kingdom of God is coming, so you really do need to pull down the statue of yourself in your own heart. You need to put me there, and you need to see that that and trusting in me is the source of joy. Crazy thing about being a pastor is that, and it's difficult, is that you see the depth to which people can hurt. And I've never seen anybody hurt deep as a direct result of following Jesus. But I've seen people and I've felt in myself the kind of hurt that would make you wish you never lived by not following me. And so the kingdom of God is coming. You need to switch allegiance, repent, trust in Jesus. Secondly, the call to allegiance results in following Jesus and fishing for men. When it says, follow me, that's exactly what Jesus is calling you to do. He's not calling you to make a one-time decision, put your name on a card, and then go about your life. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Now, I, I want to be balanced about this because Jesus may be calling some of us in this room to a radical kind of falling, falling, following that results in us being out on the mission field. And it results in us uh, making tremendous sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Here we see uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John leaving their professions. And in some ways it looks like leaving their families and going off. And we can think that the only way that we follow Jesus is to follow him like that. But there's some things we need to remember and I'm not trying to call back that kind of radical sacrifice. I'm just trying to set expectations. There's indications that at points in the Gospels, Simon and uh, Andrew and James and John were doing what again? And they still knew their families, right? Now, these four men ended up in crazy, crazy places. One of them uh, ended up near Russia preaching the gospel and another uh, ended up in Rome preaching the gospel and another was in Ephesus. They went far places. But don't hear here that fundamentally the only way to obey Jesus is to sell everything and become a missionary. I don't think that's... There are some of you God's calling you to do that and you should do that. But for many of us, God is calling us just to be faithful and live out his lordship uh, in, in our day in and, and day out lives, right? And, and, and the call to abandon your family isn't a call not to love your family. It's what Jesus is just saying here to follow me is to put me first, whether it's in Moldova or whether it's in Manning, right? Whether it's in Algeria or whether it's in Alkalu, whether it's, you know, in some place that starts with an S that's far off and wackadoo, San Francisco or Sumter. But in all things, what Jesus is calling us to do is to follow him where, where we are and to follow him where he would have us go. That's his call. It's a call to allegiance. This morning, the, the point is not did you at some point have an emotional experience that led to something that you could check off as belief? What Jesus is saying is the kingdom is here. You need to tuck in behind me and stick close.
And that's what saving faith looks like. Not only do we follow Jesus, and remember, this following is interesting. In the ancient world, your rabbi didn't choose you, you chose your rabbi. There were lots of them, and so what you did is you kind of checked them all out, see which one you really liked, who's teaching you like, and then you approached them and you said, hey, my name's Drew, can I follow you? And he'd go, yeah. That's not the way it works with Jesus. The way it works is the other way around. You, You don't call Jesus, Jesus calls you. But he calls you to follow him. What Christianity gives you is not another mechanism for reaching God. It's not some practice to maintain. Christianity is not a formula or a prescription. Christianity is Jesus. And living like him and following him. So you follow Jesus. And when Jesus calls us to allegiance, he calls us to fish for men. Now... I used to think, why in the world would Jesus say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? It's easy. Peter and Andrew and James and John were what? Fishermen. So of course he'd say, and if he was calling me, he'd say, Drew, come drum for Jesus. That's what I wanted to do when I was like 17. I wanted to be a professional drummer. Or maybe if he's calling you, you know, make spreadsheets for Christ. I don't know. But that's not what's going on here. Um, what's going on here is Jesus is reaching back into the Old Testament pedigree, this idea of fisher of men, and he's saying, that's what I want my disciples to be. Again, trick question. Do you know who the fisher of men was in the Old Testament? It was God. And usually when God was fishing for men, he was fishing them up for judgment. Let me read you some passages. Jeremiah 16, 16. Go home and look at these. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill, out of the clefts and the rocks. What is he hunting? What's he fishing for? Things for judgment. Ezekiel 29, 4. God says, I will put hooks in your jaws. When you're fishing, what are you trying to do? You're trying to hook them. And I will make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. Ezekiel 38, 4. I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Amos 4, 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks. Now that adds an interesting twist on this passage. And it fits in to what Jesus said just earlier. When Jesus is calling us to be fishers of men, I think this is what's going on. That there's coming a day where God is going to send out his fish hooks. And he's going to draw people and nations up for judgment. And Jesus, coming on the scene now, introducing the kingdom of God, is saying this. Before the big net is cast, let's be out there fishing for men for God before God fishes for those men. Do you follow me? Jesus is taking an Old Testament scene that has to do with judgment. And he's saying, in this time before the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, I want you to go out and fish for men and not draw them up for judgment 
but draw them up for salvation. What Jesus is saying here is this, is that if you follow him, your life is to be a life on mission. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of churches have different gifts, right? Um, and there's a lot that we do right. I think from top to bottom, I think we're one of the best Bible teaching churches around. I really do feel that way because we work really hard at that. We know the importance of that. Many of us have grown up in traditions where the Bible was just handled carelessly and we want to handle it carefully. Amen. I think there's also, following from that, I think that there's also a real sense in which we're a church that can counsel well. And I'm actually working with Low Country Biblical Counseling Center to possibly establish a counseling center here. We do that well, I think. Fishing for men we need to work on. Now, the problem is, the reflection, the, the the weaknesses of this church reflect the weaknesses of your what? You whispered that, but let's be honest, right? And so the question here is, what is Jesus calling us to do, and what do we need to be about as a church? And it's not just my weakness. It's our weakness. Last year, when we were putting the budget together, the elders took the evangelism budget, which is six grand, and said this, if any of you have an idea about how to reach the community, to reach your community, you come to us and we'll fund it. Do you know how many ideas came to me? What Jesus is calling us here is to be on mission. Again, most Christians in the early church were slaves. They had to work all day too. But even in the midst of their work, they considered that what they were doing, they were doing for Christ and his kingdom. And when they spoke, they spoke of Christ and his kingdom. I'm not really calling us to learn the four spiritual laws and present them to people, although that's a wonderful thing to do and it may be where we need to start. But because we are a Bible teaching and a Bible counseling church, maybe we can look at our mission in this way. Is that there are people in your life and there are people in my life who need to hear what God's word says about their problems and it usually starts with coming to submission under the Lordship of Christ. And maybe we need to interpret our problems and interpret the people that we speak to's problems and their joys in light of what God is doing in Christ and to call forth many people to believe in him and then to begin to meet with them and disciple them and read the Bible with them. Is there someone that you feel led to share the gospel with? Spend two weeks praying for them and then figure out what you're going to do. Go up to them and say, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me sometime? Or, hey, would you like to go to church? Did you know that people are 80% predisposed to come to church to an invitation? There's only a one in five chance that someone will actually go, no. At least 80% of people are somewhat willing. And that's a start. And you don't invite them to church because that means the job is done. You invite them to church as the first step in you discipling them. Right? Because what Jesus is saying is, when you follow me, if you follow me, I'm going to put you on mission. He doesn't say, follow me, and perhaps you'll be fishers of men. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men.
Jesus is the king who's come in advance to show that his kingdom is coming. And our job is to make followers of him. We all have different roles we play in that. But all of us need to feel that sense that today I'm on mission for the Lord. And the opportunities that he gives me by his grace, more and more I'm going to grab them to speak the word to people. And to press them into the service of the king. May God use us to not give people pickup lines for Christ, but to be the, the conduit of his sovereign voice in calling many to change their allegiance, to come into his kingdom and to follow him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that our Jesus is the fairest of 10,000. Lord, open up our hearts to love and to serve him and out of love and devotion to him to call many to follow him. Give us wisdom, Lord. There's a lot of people that we know that know we are Christians and we know they're not. And maybe we haven't lived in front of them like we should. Father, just give us mercy and wisdom and grace so that people might be called to follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.